I just want to read for us our text for this morning as we close out these verses. And uh, begins in verse 10 there of chapter 1. Paul writes, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Last week we looked at verse 10 and we saw clearly God wants and desires his body, his church to be uh, united. He's provided everything for us in Christ for that to happen. It already exists. Um, Remember, unity is not something that we can create, but we can destroy it. And so we're called to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. And we talked about the purpose of unity in the church. We said, first of all, it brings glory to God. Secondly, it brings blessing to the congregation. And then also we said that it brings joy to the leadership. And so that's kind of an important threefold benefit of having a church that is unified. And so... It's, it's important that our church is unified, that we are of one mind. And he says there, remember in verse 10, he says, this doesn't mean that you just you know uh, agree to disagree kind of a thing. This is talking about doctrinal unity. It's talking about all believing the same thing, believing what the Bible indicates and calls us to believe. And so he says... That all of you agree. You say, well, can't we disagree on some things? Well, it depends what the some things are. As far as the, the basic fundamentals of our faith, I would say no. As believers, we, we, we should adhere to what the Bible teaches. Now, there are passages in the Bible that allow for gray area because the Bible doesn't fully explain maybe what it means by a certain thing, and so people pop off and they say all kinds of, of things. I was studying last week for Second Samuel, and we, we went through Second uh, Samuel 8, and it talks about all of David's battles. And in, in part of the, the chapter, it says that he took all these horse, horses from the chariots that they took as spoils of war, and... Um, he uh, basically maimed them so they could never be used again. And I read one commentary where it says, well, I don't know why he would do that. That's such a valuable asset. And maybe he just didn't, he didn't uh, understand the value of a, of, of a horse and a chariot in battle. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, the, the text doesn't even say that. 
you know, and so the, a lot of times when the text is silent on certain things, maybe it doesn't tell us why something happened or whatever, people tend to speculate and say, well, this could be this or could it be that. Um, we're not called to do that. And so we need to make sure that we're certain and we're clear that we, when we teach the Bible, when we teach the Word of God, that we teach it in such a way that it is um, the way it's presented in Scripture. And yeah, there are some gaps left. There are some holes there that, you know, that's why God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. There's some secret things that belong only to the Lord. We're not going to figure it all out this side of glory. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that as a church, that we can follow the Scripture and we can be agreed on the basic tenets of what it says. And I would even take it a step further because some people say, well, okay, that's great, but what if you disagree on maybe some teachings within the body of Christ? There are people that, for example, they believe that gifts are still for today. You know, they they believe all the spiritual gifts, all the sign gifts, all the wonder gifts, tongues, all that stuff is currently active today. There are other people called cessationists, which we fall into that camp. We say, well, no, they don't exist today. They were for the establishment of the church in the New Testament. And after the church was established, the foundation was laid. There was no need for the apostles to continue to, the disciples to continue to be um, kind of accredited and, and, and be found worthy because they were doing the very works of Christ And so they established the church, and after the church was established, you see in the New Testament where a lot of that stuff just falls away. Paul says that in Corinthians when we get there, tongues will cease. And so people argue over when that happened. And so, you know, you can say that you believe in in the gift of languages and tongues for today or not, but the point is, is that you need to find a congregation (laughs) that is like how you believe. You know, you don't come into a cessationist kind of a church and start propagating everybody should speak in tongues, for example. That would be divisive. Why? Because they don't believe that. They don't believe the Bible teaches that. And so you have to be careful that you don't just have unity for the sake of unity and just, you know, kind of a kumbaya moment, everybody hold hands, and doctrine's not important. That's not what Paul is talking about here at all. He's talking about doctrinal purity. He's talking about unity in what we understand the Bible teaches. And so this is what happened basically in, in Corinth, is there was divisions here. And the reasons there was divisions is because people started popping off in what they thought or what they, who they followed or what they believed. And as a church, you have to understand, when, when God set up the church, he didn't set up the congregation as a ruling authority in a church. You know, you hear some churches, their, their, their church government, their polity is, is their congregational run. So whatever happens in the church, the congregation votes on it. And so if they get half the congregation that votes one way or maybe three quarters, whatever, then they go with that and that's just not the way the Bible says that a church should be run. Uh, it says that you should appoint elders, and as elders, they're, they're committed to rule and rule well and carry out the will of God for that local church. And that even comes down to, I believe, the doctrines that a local church upholds and holds dear and believes. And so this is what was the problem in the church of Corinth. And you can see the mandate for... Um, the unity of the church in those verses I listed there. 
because we talked about the source of this unity is the Lord himself. But, you know, in Romans chapter 1, for example, just to read a couple of these, uh, verse 29, it says, They were filled with all manner, of righteous, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to them who practice. You notice there in the first list there, it says they are full of envy, murder, strife. That has the idea of division. That has the idea of people within the local church who are trying to create an issue, a problem. They're rallying behind a cause. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. And then he just throws in there, not in quarreling and jealousy. Um, We should put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Division has no place within the local church. And the only reason divisiveness would be in a local church is if the church is fleshly, if the church is filled with the flesh, if the church is filled with people who desire their own way and not the Lord's way. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish. He's giving them a heads up. And he says, And that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. All those things are the result of divisiveness within the local church. Even in Galatians chapter 5, Paul points out the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and then he says strife, jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, he says. And he goes on. And he he calls for us not to live by the flesh, but to live by what? The Spirit. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives instructions to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see the word teaching there. It has the idea that something's being taught. So many times churches don't teach anything because they're afraid they'll offend somebody. So they just don't teach anything. The messages are very vanilla. They don't take a stand on anything. And so he goes on, in verse 2, he says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches, this is what he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. (laughs) He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which may produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction upon people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 
imagining that godliness is a measure, is a means of gain. And so what Paul is sharing there is that, you know what, you need to be able to teach the doctrines of the Bible, and you teach such a way in an authoritative way. I heard a pastor on the radio this past week, and he was talking about how sometimes there's division in the body of Christ. And his answer was, well, we just don't address certain things. And he said this. He says, I go by the watermelon principle. And he says, you know, when I'm listening to another pastor teach, you know, I'll sit there and I'll be listening to him and he'll say something good, say something, you know, and then all of a sudden something doesn't ring true to me, so I just spit that seed out. But I continue to be under his teaching. I don't make a big deal about it. I just kind of can go, go ahead and go with the flow. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's going to create chaos in a church. If that's how you teach as a pastor, if you're unwilling to teach things that may be controversial, you may isolate certain people from, you know, certain, because you teach certain doctrines, whether it's the doctrine of cessationism or the, the doctrine of um, election, things like that are very controversial within the body of Christ. They don't want to, people don't want to hear those things. And so when you teach those things, you're immediately isolating certain people. And the problem is people are focusing on the crowd size versus the truthfulness of the messages. Titus chapter 3, verse 8 to 11 says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that you who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid, he says in verse 9, Titus 3, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... In other words, you have somebody in your church that's dividing the church. Here's what you do. It says you warn him once and then twice. So the first time he gets kind of a pass. Second time you warn him. And then it says have nothing more to do with such a person. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That sounds very harsh. But then it says knowing that such a person is warped and they're sinful and he's self-condemned. And you say, well, boy, warped, sinful? Yes, because they're bringing dishonor to the body of Christ. You know, it's so important that we, we acknowledge the unity we have in Christ, but it's also very important that we acknowledge that we have to keep the unity that we share. And I thank God that, you know, I'm serving in a church where that unity exists, and it's very real. It doesn't mean we're perfect. I'm sure there's people that believe different things here. That's fine. But you know what? It's not fine to say, well, you know, the pastor last week, he taught this, and I, I believe this, and, you know, I'm going to, why don't you come over to my house, and, and we'll have a Bible study on this, and I'll show you where the pastor's wrong. <laughs> that would be divisiveness. That would be someone who is warped, someone who is sinful, someone who is self-condemned. And he says, don't have anything to do with somebody like that after you warn them once or twice. Even in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of Paul, or a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. This is what we're called to do within the body of Christ. Verse 3, eager to maintain, notice what it says, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
You already have a unity in the body of Christ. We already have that. It already exists. What are we called to do? We're called to maintain it. Well, how do you do it? You do it with all humility, with all gentleness, and with all patience. And then he gives the reason. Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul is saying, look, there is absolutely no place for any kind of divisiveness. Well, look at verse Verse 11, because we see here where Paul pronounces the problem, and we'll go quickly through this. He says, it's been reported to me. Sounds like gossip. No. See, we have people today that are unwilling to say certain things because they're fearful of that. That's not gossip. Gossip is maligning somebody behind their back. I mean, the New Testament says enough about gossip. It means to whisper. The focus is not on a a falsehood of the word, but the fact that it seems to be kind of, you're you're saying something over and over. It's not open, it's not candid, it's behind somebody's back. It's not being forthright with someone. It does not operate in the light of love. It's not about fixing their problem, it's about telling everybody else about their problem. That's the issue of gossip, that's the issue of, of slander. This was not gossip. It was not slander. Paul says very clearly, it has been reported to me by an anonymous source. Is that what he says? No, he says by Chloe's people. He just says it. We have to stop dancing around these issues and address them when they need to be addressed as the body of Christ. Why? Because we love each other. We care for each other. We want to hold each other accountable. That word there, it has been reported, means to make clear, evident, revealed. In my years in ministry, a lot of times, you know, my wife will see something, maybe in individuals or maybe in a group of people or maybe in whatever, and she'll come to me. Just say, you know, I just see this going on, and you know, I think you need to address it. And I always tell her, well, I don't have anything to address because nobody's come to me <laughs> with an issue on this thing. There's no hard facts here. See, this was not a case like that. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this: that over the years, when she's come to me, more than not, she's been right. <laughs> And in time, it proves itself out. But sometimes you just have to be patient and let God reveal certain things. You can't question people's motives or whatever. But here, it was actually reported. It was made clear. It was revealed. And it was revealed to them personally. You know, once in a while, I'll get a letter or an email. Or I mean, somebody was really ingenious. One time, they, I forget what it was. I think they sent me a, somehow they sent me a fax in an email, but it, I couldn't know who it came from. <laughs> it was, you know, I think it had something to do with a political thing or something. I don't know when the presidential thing was going on. It was, it was just really odd. And I thought, am I that unapproachable? I mean, you can't just come up and say, you know, i got an issue with this. I mean, that's how it should be done. You know, and we need to, as the body of Christ, we need to be reminded of that. 
You know, a lot of times people will come to us as leaders and say, well, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, so-and-so, you know. Well, then go talk to them. If you know about it, you go talk to them. You're just as much the body, body of Christ as I am. That's what the, the Bible indicates that we should do, right? If you see a brother or sister in sin, what do you do? You go and you address it. You address it personally, out of love, not of, out of condemnation. And if they don't listen to you, you take somebody else with you. And if they still don't listen to you, what do you, you know, I mean, it's all spelled out to us there in Matthew, right? It's a, it's a form of church discipline. I mean, so many times we think church discipline is hauling somebody in front of the congregation and voting on whether they're going to live or die or whatever, you know, kick them out, kick them in, whatever. You know, that's not church discipline. The role, the goal of any church discipline should always be restoration. And that doesn't matter if it's church-wide or just personal. When you go address somebody's sin in their life, why are you doing that? Are you doing it so you look better in their eyes? Well, I don't have this problem, so I'm going to appoint that. No, you do it out of love. You do it humbly. You do it gently, as we just read. You do it in a restorative fashion with a a spirit of restoration. See, this wasn't some gossip that was going on in the church. Somebody came right to Paul and said, and he even tells us who, it was was Chloe's people. Who was Chloe? We don't know. (laughs) A lot of people believe somebody in Ephesus. She knew Paul from his time in Ephesus. Apparently, she was wealthy because she had people. Some people believe they were her servants. So maybe her servants left Chloe's household. They ended up here in Corinth, and they started going to this church. And maybe they were telling Chloe, boy, this church is really messed up. Maybe you need to tell Paul about this. But it wasn't gossip. And it was notice it wasn't just one person that was reporting this. It says Chloe's what? People, not Chloe's person. So it was a group of people that saw this problem. You know, we always pray as leaders that it never gets to that point. Hopefully, if you see a problem in our lives or the lives of somebody else, you come and we address it before it gets to multiple people. You know, then it's, then it's really something you, you definitely want to deal with at that point. Well, what did they, what did they whiff? It says, well, that there are quarrelings among you, my brothers. Quarrelings, strife, contentions, backbiting, going back and forth. And notice he throws in there, my brothers. He's just doubling down on what he, he said earlier. He wants them to be reminded of who they are in Christ, that you're part of the family of God, that you're part of Christ's church. This shouldn't be going on. This doesn't exist within the church of Christ, disunity. And then here in verse 12, we see where Paul pinpoints the parties. Not only does he directly deal with it with Chloe, they direct conversation back and forth. It's not some random phone call in the middle of the night. Hey, just let you know, so-and-so, is, you know, this doesn't happen that way. They're dealing with it up front and honestly. But then Paul basically calls out people. He begins to pinpoint what the issue is. They basically had a celebrity culture going on within the church of Corinth. And that's what happens today in our churches. So many churches are filled with this celebrity culture. You know, they're, they're going to a church because the pastor's a celebrity or they're, you know, whatever. They're interested in following that individual. And that's what you see here in Corinth. And he points it out, verse 12, 
What I mean by divisiveness is what he's saying by these divisions. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Notice he puts himself first. I think he does that out of humility, not out of saying, hey, look at me. He's saying, hey, there's even people that ascribe to my teaching that are wrong here. You know, we see this within the body of Christ all the time. When people are more interested in the teaching of an individual than they are the teaching of the Word of God. So many times I go to a conference or something, and they'll ask me, well, what's, what, what denomination is Grace Bible Church? Well, it's, it's a non-denominational Bible church, so we teach the Bible. Oh, okay. Um, well, who are you affiliated with? I go, well, we're really not affiliated with anybody. It's a non-denominational church. It's an independent Bible church. We, we follow Christ. We, we teach the Bible. And they're still on their fishing ex- expedition. And usually, you know, well, um, you know, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you read? What books do you read? Who you? They're looking for a name. They want to put a name, right, to our theology. Rather than just say we're biblicists, we teach the Bible, they want a name. And so eventually it comes out, you know, sooner or later, well, you know, what conferences do you go to? Well, I go to the shepherds. Oh, you're a MacArthur guy. <laughs> well, No. I mean, I respect John MacArthur. I, re- I respect his ministry, definitely. I, you know, I don't have any problem with his teachings, but I wouldn't say I'm a MacArthur guy. See, that's what was going on here. They're not impugning the leaders here. They're not impugning Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who's Peter, and Christ. It can't be that, because who could impugn the character of Christ? Right? They're saying there's certain people that look at these individuals and they put them up on a platform on a pedestal, and that's the only person they're going to follow. So Paul, who's Paul? He's the founding pastor of the church here in Corinth. It's always difficult to follow the founding pastor of a church in ministry. So you get called. and I mean, can you imagine? I mean, John MacArthur this year is going to have 50 years in ministry at Grace Community Church. 50 years in one church. How would you like to be the pastor that follows him when he dies? Oh, my goodness. And then you had Apollos. He was the pastor after Paul left. Paul went back to Ephesus, and, and he appointed Apollos. And Apollos was very eloquent in his words. He was a very well, well-groomed speaker, apparently. And then you had Peter, Cephas. Now, obviously, he wasn't, most people don't think he was at Corinth. But apparently some of his followers, maybe they got saved under Peter's ministry, and they were looking at Peter, and they were saying, well, you know, he was with Christ. We're, we're a Peter. None of this Paul stuff. I mean, he, yeah, he met Jesus on some road, but Peter was with him, man. You know, and plus he's, you know, for the Jews, he, he's, he's all about ministering to us. And so they had their, their group there. And then you had some people, and you think, well, that's very noble. They're followers of Christ. I follow Christ. But that's not how Paul's indicating they said it. He's indicating that I just follow Christ. I don't need any of you other people to teach me anything. <laughs> you ever met people like that? I have. They sit at home in their living room on a Sunday morning with their Bible open, looking at somebody on TV, or maybe just, you know, I'm not going to go under, be part of a church. The church is full of hypocrites, and besides, nobody can teach me anything. I just follow Christ. That's the spirit in which this was coming across. They, they, they consider themselves superior to everybody else by invoking the name of Christ. 
So you have these groupies <laughs> latching on to these spiritual leaders, and that has no place within the body of Christ. And then in verse 13 to 16, Paul begins to proclaim the principle of unity. He says in verse 13, is Christ divided? In other words, you people are saying you're, you're within the local church and you're, you're following different leaders? To the extent where, you know, I, I mean, I've even seen it in churches where if someone's up behind the pulpit teaching, they don't like that person, so they're not coming that Sunday. That's, what are you doing in that church? <laughs> See, that has no place within the body of Christ. See, it doesn't matter. You're not respecting the person by coming under the hearing of the word of God. It doesn't matter if Ken's up here, if Dave's up here, whoever, Danny. It's irrelevant. As long as they're holding true to what the word of God says, we have to have a healthy respect for the individual teaching. It's not about personalities. I mean, we all have different personalities. And the church has turned into a kind of a personality cult nowadays. They follow personalities. And so he says there in verse 13, is Christ divided? Are you saying there's any way that Christ could be divided? The body of Christ could be divided? That's impossible. And then he goes further and he invokes his own name so he doesn't put the other teachers down. It's an act of humility. Once again, he's saying... Was Paul crucified for you? Did I die for your sins? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, think about that. Think about how, you know, and it comes very, in different cultures, you see this. To be very honest with you, I almost didn't even show some of the videos of the the testimonies of the pastors. (laughs) Because I'm listening to them, they're like, oh, thank you, Pastor Steve. And I know what they're saying. They don't mean it like in a worship, but I just don't feel comfortable with that. But see, here, the people who were following these individuals made a big hoopla about their leader. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. And Paul says, wait a minute. The body of Christ isn't divided. None of these men, none of them. He invokes his own name, but none of them were crucified for you. Why would you follow another human being? Can you imagine if we had a baptism? And I sat up there and I said, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of Steve Converse. (laughs) Whoa. That's what Paul's saying. That's where these people had them on that level. They were worshiping these leaders to that extent. The mere fact that he says, was Paul crucified for you? Are you a disciple of Paul? Are you, are you a follower of Steve or Ken or whoever? Is that what this is about? No. And that's why he says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. In other words, I only did two, from my memory, Crispus and Gaius. Crispus was a, a converted leader of the synagogue of Corinth. He was a leader of that, and he got saved under Paul's ministry, apparently. So Paul baptized him, and Gaius was a host to Paul. He's spoken of in Romans 16. 
He says, so that, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. These, what, that's what these people were saying. They were going around, and part of their testimony was, and I was baptized by Peter. Well, yeah, well, you know what? I was, well, I can't say that because Christ didn't baptize anybody really, did he? That's what the gospels say. His disciples did all the baptizing for him. Very wise move, I would say, on his part. I was baptized of Apollos. I was baptized of Paul. They were all claiming these, these accolades, and Paul says, this has no place. And then I love verse 16. See, this shows you how real these men were when they were writing the Bible. They were being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet their personalities were still part of it. They weren't just robots. Okay, what, what next, God? Okay, I'll write this down. What's, I don't know. It's part of their personality. And so Paul stops and he's beginning to think. He goes, you know what? Hold on a second. I want to speak truth here. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, just to be clear. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else or not. I can't really remember. My memory's failing me. But as far as I know, it's three people, three households. And then he talks about his priority. He says, all this stuff doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant. He says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Do you understand this, that baptizing someone never saved anybody? Baptism will not save you. And there's a lot of people within the church that have been baptized and that's why they think they're saved. <laughs> Even though the scripture says that it's, that it's just a sign of your, of your inward change. It's a testimony of your newfound faith in Christ. It's a testimony being baptized by water, by immersion, is what they did in the New Testament. is a sign of who you are in Christ now. It's a testimony to the community of believers and non-believers for that matter. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not my primary role. Don't get me wrong. I think any pastor would love to baptize people because you're, you're depicting the gospel right there with someone going under the water, coming out. You're hearing their testimony. All the glory goes to God. Praise the Lord. He's not saying that it's wrong. He's just saying that's not my priority. And you hear even with some ministries, some missionary ministries, some evangelistic ministries, some even pastors will say this. Yeah, we had a, we had a meeting, you know, down there in, in Fremont. And, you know, praise God, we had 500 people get baptized. I, I often want to say, well, how many got saved? See, they, they're, they're, they're focusing on the wrong thing. But he says, that's not my priority, but what's my priority? My priority is simply this, to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. And that's the priority that should be the priority of every single one of us here. When we leave these doors, when we go out into this lost and dying world, what is our priority? To say, oh, I follow this person. I follow that person. I was baptized by this person. I was baptized by that person. No, we preach the gospel. We preach the word of God. And Paul says there, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, you don't have to be an Apollos to be a preacher. You don't have to be some eloquent 
speaker to be a preacher, you basically get up and you mouth the word of God. You, you voice, give voice to the word of God. Because if it's the only thing people are following is your eloquent wisdom, then what loses? He says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, if you're coming to hear somebody because they're a good speaker, you don't really care what they speak on. And I've seen people that can do this. I, I, I know a lot of people, actually, that are very, very gifted individuals. God has given them the gift of oratory. They just get up and they can, you know, stand before a crowd and, you know, Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And before you know it, half the crowd's crying. Just because they're very gifted at moving people's hearts and things like that. But a lot of them are using it for the wrong reason. See, here Paul is saying that has no place in the pulpit of Christ. That has no place. You know, we're not here to entertain. We're not here for performance. We're here to lift high the cross of Christ. Because if it's not lifted high, if we're not pointing people to the cross, what happens? The cross has no potential power in anybody's lives. If you're not preaching the gospel of Christ, if you're not preaching the cross, if, if that is taken out of your message because it's offensive, then guess what? You've just emptied the cross of Christ of its power because you're not communicating it. See, people aren't saved because of our fancy little track or, or how much we pray or anything like that. People are come to the Christ, come to the Savior because God draws them and he draws them in a way that is irresistible. And so when we share our message of the gospel, when we leave here, we have to do it. We preach the gospel. We preach a cross on which Christ hung. But not only that, but we also preach that he was what? He was risen from the dead the third day, and that he has the power to forgive you of all your sin, past, present, future. And for the first time in your life, you can be brought into a personal relationship with God, and you can become part of that unity that exists within the body of Christ. What a glorious thing. And that's what is entrusted to us as believers. And so we want to be faithful to that as our calling. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that this unity exists. And Lord, we're going to find out that it's easily broken, it's easily battered, as is in the church of Corinth even. They had a lot of divisiveness going on that was unnecessary in so many ways. And so Lord, we just pray now that you would help us to focus this next week on this unity, that we would continue to maintain it, that we would continue to strive to do all that we can to serve you in the spirit, not in the flesh. Lord, help us to have that gentleness, that patience with one another. And Lord, if there's something that we see in the life of another that is sinful, Lord, I pray that we would just have the, the, the wisdom to go to them in grace and explain to them the issue and seek restoration. Help point these things out that we wouldn't run from it. And yet at the same time, I pray that we wouldn't be unnecessarily gossiping and maligning people. Lord, it's okay to point things out. It's okay to have healthy discussions about things, but when it gets to a point where you're, there's malice involved and you're trying to tear somebody down rather than, than lift them up, Lord, and we all go there, I just pray that you would guard our hearts and our tongues in that area as well. If there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray today might be the day that they cry out to you, Lord, 
have mercy on me. Save me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That's a prayer. If it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will hear, he'll transform you. He'll make you a brand new person in Christ, the Bible says. Forgive all your sins, past, present, future. He'll give you the Holy Spirit of God deposited in your life to walk, to empower you to walk this Christian life to which we're called. So, Lord, we just thank you for your grace here this morning. We praise you and ask your uh, blessing on our time across the way. In Jesus' precious name, amen.